You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. There are times when God breaks in and gives you an opportunity that's too good to miss. When William Shakespeare was writing his plays a few hundred years ago, he had no idea that a group of boys at Bonus Academy would take some of his words and twist them a wee bit. <clears throat> you remember Julius Caesar, where they've all stuck the daggers into him. And he's lying there and he looks up and he sees Brutus. And he says, they too, Brutus. You too, Brutus. And the boy says, Get you a brute. <laughs> and then when Mark Antony comes forward to give his big speech, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, the same lad he said, Newton, Maiden Park, Deanfield, gears your lugs. <laughs> but he goes on to say, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Too good an opportunity. Not exactly to bury Margaret, <laughs> but maybe to praise her a wee bit. <clears throat> Never knew her when she was in the Salvation Army in her uniform, but when an inter-church group of young feet in Bowness, Baptists, St. Andrew's Salvation Army Apostolic got together, Margaret was there, and it wasn't long before she'd left the Salvation Army and come over to Apostolic. And she wanted a career in teaching. So Falkirk, up there near the Skew Bridge, was where Margaret did her teaching instructions. But she wasn't just wanting to be a teacher, she wanted to be a Hedy. And so off to Stirling University, even in classes and what have you, to get a degree there. And then Margaret and I remember the day when she came in and said she'd got a head teacher's job at Wallace Stone. Where was Wallace Stone? <laughs> it was like Brigadoon, that, <laughs> that village that came into being every hundred years. Wallace Stone, up the breeze. Well, there she became the, I believe it was the youngest head teacher in Falkirk District. In church life, she was one of four deaconesses in Bonus Apostolic Church, along with Janice Ewer, Isabel Sorley, and Margaret Bennett. You never crossed them. <laughs> but they did a remarkable job. Still do a remarkable job looking after the folks in Bonus. And then, at one of the national council meetings down in Bradford, they were looking for someone to take the post of national woman's leader. I don't know if they ever knew Bonnes existed, but Margaret ended up being the national woman's leader for the UK. Four years post, when the four years were up, 
There wasn't another woman in the UK wanted the job, so they gave her it again for another four years. And Keith and I can remember sometimes when she's maybe way down London, the Midlands, South Wales, Keith and I would jump into her car, drive down the 74, down in the Lake District, and get to the TB service station. And Keith would drive her car back up and I would have a coffee waiting for Margaret driving up from somewhere down south. And after a wee break, I would drive back up the road. And she'd either be chatting away or like this and see, you know. But she was always up the Monday morning and straight back up to Wallerstone. Then she retired. Oh, no, a wee bit in between, isn't it? She couldn't find a man. <laughs> They'd all been taken in Bonesse. So she had to go to Inverness to get a man. David came into her life. And that, that was a happy day, and it's been a happy few years in marriage. But then she retired, and I got a phone call from Reverend Albert Bogle saying, Len, have you got Margaret MacDonald's telephone number? The Church of Scotland School out in Jaffa needs a head teacher for a few months. Maybe she'd go out. So there it was, she went to 121 George Street, did all the interviews and what have you, and they said, okay, off you go, and her and David set out for Israel in Jaffa for three months. Margaret, we can't get a head teacher, could you stay till Easter? Could you stay till summer? And between three and four years later, she was still there with David. But back she's come to Bonesse, settled back in Bonesse, and here she is this morning, being commissioned as a pastor. I don't think I embarrassed you, Margaret, there. <laughs> I'd have loved her. <laughs> and here we have the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he's got these two verses. And of course, when somebody says, we're going to speak on something from Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, somebody say, oh no, here it is. Son, about these gifts of speaking in tongues and other gifts. Oh no, 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 we don't want to hear that. Well, just to remind you that the Apostle Paul had no problem with tongues. No problem with foreign languages coming out in the gift of the Spirit. But he did have a way of saying to the church in Corinth, get it right. Get it right. And so, in verse 19, he says, I would rather speak five words in everyday language than a thousand in an unknown tongue. It tells us that tongues are for you, for your own benefit, that if you're in prayer and somehow you're lost for words, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you some kind of unknown tongue and you're praying in a different dimension. But he says to them, I would rather speak five words in everyday language than a thousand in an unknown tongue. And what he's saying is, someone who's standing here speaking to you, what use is me speaking to you in Russian if nobody here knows what Russian is? Because unknown tongues are languages. On the day of Pentecost, they were actual languages. What good is it me speaking a thousand words in Chinese if you didn't know what Chinese means? 
And so he says, I'd rather speak five words in everyday language. And he was a bit of a linguist. He could speak Aramaic, the everyday language back then. He could speak Hebrew. He'd been to the big schools, the Hebrew schools. He knew it fluently. And he certainly knew Greek because he writes to us in Greek. And I dare say, the Roman culture being the top dogs, he knew a bit of Latin as well. Chances are he knew four languages pretty well. But he says, when I'm standing before you in church, I'd rather speak five words in everyday language than a thousand in an unknown tongue. And this verse is spoken with apostolic love and tenderness. He's no flighting them, hitting them with a rod. He's asking them to be good, to think about what's happening in church. What might five short phrases of five words say to us about the Christian faith? What five words could we say that might describe the life of Jesus? Well, here's my wee group of five words to describe the life of Jesus. Eternally, the Lamb of God. Five words. Eternally, the Lamb of God. Another five. The Son sent to redeem. Another five. No, this is six. I couldn't get it to five. <laughs> the Son died for our sins. And another six. The Son rose the third day. And back to five. The Son intercedes for us. But how about that first one? Speaking of Jesus, eternally the Son of God. Where do we go in the Bible for that? Well, we go to Revelation, the book, last book in the Bible, we go to chapter 3, and we come to verse 18, where the Apostle John, with this amazing vision that he's having of things all jumbled up and they seem to make no sense at all at times, he comes and he says these words. He saw a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He saw a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Seems to be to be a wee bit funny that John should see a lamb, a sheep in heaven. You know, they're normally out in the fields, but he sees a sheep in heaven. But it's not just a sheep, it's a dead sheep. What's a dead sheep doing in heaven? What's that saying to us? But it's not only that. It is a sheep that's dead. And then he says, as though from the foundation of the world. How do you look at a dead sheep and know how long it's been dead? I love I love the detective series in the TV when the detective asked the mortuary attendant, how long do you think they've been dead? Oh, six hours, eight hours, whatever it is. But John's saying something out of the ordinary. He sees a sheep dead 
as though before the foundation of the world. How do you measure a dead sheep lying there and say these words before the foundation of the world? Come on now. How does John describe his attitude right at the beginning of Revelation? How does he describe his attitude? Zero for you. I was in the Spirit. That's what he says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And seeing the Lamb, as it were, slain before the foundation of the world, being in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit shows him by revelation what this dead Lamb is all about. The Holy Spirit brings revelation into what John is seeing a dead lamb in heaven. Nothing else to tell us what it's about. But he adds these extra words, as before the foundation of the world. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Dead sheep is nothing to a Jew like the Apostle John. He knows that Abraham found a, de- found a sheep in the bushes when he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. God provided a lamb. God provided a sheep. And at Passover time, they were ordered to kill a sheep, a lamb, and dab the doorposts with blood to get them out of Egypt. And when we think of a sheep and Jesus, we think of Isaiah's words. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Speaking of Jesus. And then we think of Jesus coming to the River Jordan itself and his cousin John, John the Baptist, sees him coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is identified as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I like three professors, three great men. One, Stephen Hawking, dead now, but going around in that chair, an amazing man. The other one would be Brian Cox, this young fellow who appears on the screens, tries to tell us about time and gravity and all these things. And the third one would be a professor in Harvard University, Owen Gingrich. Now, Stephen Hawking nailed his colors to the mass when he said, there's no need for God to be in the picture of creation. And he takes the stand of an atheist when he says, God's not in the picture at all. All this didn't need God to come into being. And then Brian Cox, he was of that ilk as well when he said at one time that he didn't believe in a God, but he's come to the place where he says, the question, is there a God, is not a question that science can answer. It's a philosophical question. And so he's an agnostic. He says, I can't make up my mind one way or the other. But Professor Owen Gingrich of Harvard University in Boston wrote a remarkable tiny book, God's Universe. And he, coming from an Amish Christian background, says that 
this universe and this planet Earth was almost made so that it was ready for human beings to appear on Earth. So you have the atheist, the agnostic, and the Christian, all differing in how they look at the question of, is there a God? But they all agree on one thing, and I'm astounded by it. That because of their individual research, and I don't know if you're a six or seven day creationist with Genesis, or if you extend it much longer into thousands of years, and maybe even a two or three million years about how this came into being. But each of these three great professors say this, that from what they see and what they observe and what they extrapolate back from where we are now, back to a beginning, the three of them virtually agree that all this creation came into being in that split millionth of a second when there was nothing and all of a sudden, bang, all that we see in the universe came into being. And how do they date it? Scientifically, they date it to 14 billion years. Andrew, 14 billion years ago, God had a lamb slain for you. Irene, 14 billion years ago, God had a lamb slain for you. You see, to us, we think of the lamb slain 2,000 years ago at Calvary. That's where we see Jesus dying on a cross, giving his life for us, dying for us, paying the penalty for our sin that we might have a way back to God. We see Calvary 2,000 years ago as the place and the time when God, the Son, gave his life for us. But dear ones, before that instant when the big bang occurred, before that instant when everything leapt into being, God already had a plan and purpose, and the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. God the Trinity needs no one or no thing to add to, add to his perfection or happiness. Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly happy in themselves and content in themselves. But there came a time when God said, I wonder if I was to make human beings and give them free will, how would they react to that? If I was to say all I wanted from them was worship and obedience. And God knew when he made us with free will that a whole lot of us would not go his way. We'd turn our back on him and walk away. But God made a way for us to return and for us to be forgiven. And it was via a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. There's that wonderful beginning of Isaiah where the prophet sees a wonderful picture of God 
And he hears the heavenly voice saying, I want to send someone to this people of Israel. I want to send someone to them to let them know that I want to be their God. And he says, who will we send? And the prophet says, send me, here I am. I'm happy to be the one to go to Israel. But sometimes we take it almost as though Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having a conversation among themselves. And God the Father says, I've got to work for someone to do to reconcile the whole of humanity back to myself, to bring them back from their wandering ways, to have them return to me. Who will we send? And we sometimes say, God the Son says, here I am, send me. And we know from that wonderful Christmas story that the Son came to earth and in the person, the God-man of Jesus Christ, God brings his son to us. He sends him to us. Well, what's this all got to do about? Paul's words. Eternally the son, the lamb of God. What's that got to do with us? Well, I'm sure that in this day and age, what with COVID and Afghanistan, and I couldn't believe it, England cricketers beating India by an innings in 76 runs. It's going to be like 1966 all over again. <laughs> but in this day and age, there's a whole load of questions that need to be answered. The big ones and the wee ones. The wee ones we take care of every day, we answer them ourselves. But there's two questions I want to leave with you thinking of eternally the Lamb of God. What's that got to do with me? Two questions. Have you come to the place in your life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? That's a big question. Have you come to the place in your life where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven. Second question. Don't want it to happen. But suppose you were to stand tonight, die tonight, and stand before God. And he was to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Suppose he meets you at the pearly gates, and God himself comes there and says, why should I let you into heaven? How are you going to answer that? I'm not a bad fella. I was born in a great place called Bones. I've never murdered anybody. I might have sworn a wee bit or told a lie or thought something bad or said something bad, maybe even done something bad, but by and large, I'm not a bad fella. Why should I let you into heaven? There's only one answer that'll satisfy God. Is that you've recognized eternally the Lamb of God as your own personal Savior. Your own personal Savior. Nothing else will do. Nothing else 
I'll do. 